But Christ was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I hate getting gifts for people. Now, don't get me wrong, I love actually getting the gift for the person, but I hate the process of getting gifts for people because I'm really bad at picking out gifts. I'm really bad at knowing what to get a person. Uh, and believe it or not, before I um, met Beck, I had never actually gotten anyone a gift for their wedding. Um, and so I just didn't know the, the right time to get people gifts. I didn't know when you were supposed to give people gifts. Uh, luckily, I learned now, and I have someone now that can actually buy gifts for, uh, for other people for me on my behalf. Um, but I'm not really a gift person. I'm not really, um, you know, people talk about the five love languages. Um, one of those languages is receiving gifts or giving gifts. And I'm not really that kind of person. I'm not really someone that will buy something for someone or give it to them. And yet, um, we find in the scriptures that Jesus knows how to give good gifts to people. Uh, I'm actually not really much like Jesus in that way. Uh, and a lot of us, for some of us, we love gifts, we love giving gifts, but for Jesus, He gives the best gift that we can, uh, that we could possibly hope for. Now, Ephesians, uh, as a book, is going to show us what these gifts look like and how we can use these gifts better uh, to, to build up the church, to grow the church, and why this gift is actually just so important in general. So Ephesians are uh, 4 to 6, very different. This, the, the second half of this book is going to be very different to Ephesians 1 to 3. Ephesians 1 to 3 is all about building up this knowledge of the gospel. It's building up doctrine. It's building up stuff that we need to be learning, that we need to be teaching, that we need to be growing in our understanding of. But all good doctrine, all good teaching leads to application. All good things, like things that you believe, if you believe in them and trust in them, they're going to make a difference in your life, aren't they? They're going to make a difference in your life. The way that you can know whether or not you truly believe something is whether or not that has made a difference in your life. And so for Jesus here, Jesus um, has given us these gifts that we can use to build up the church. And this is what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 4 to 6. He's going to be talking about how Jesus... Uh, shows us how we need to live, how we can walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we have to Jesus as Christians. 
So, let's get into our passage. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 to 16. And so let's start in uh, verse 7. Paul says this. He says that grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. We are, as individuals, all uniquely gifted by Jesus. How are we gifted? How are we gifted by Jesus? Two ways. Two ways we're gifted by Jesus. The first way, the Holy Spirit. When you are saved in salvation, the great gift that Jesus gives to us is He gives us the Holy Spirit. We've already seen this in the book of Ephesians, haven't we? The Holy Spirit comes and indwells us. And we are made into this as a a corporate body, into this temple of the Holy Spirit. We're given the Holy Spirit as a down payment of this great inheritance that we are to receive. This little foretaste, this little tiny taste into the way that God is gifting us and the way that God will restore all things in the age to come. And so salvation comes, we receive the Holy Spirit, uh, but the Spirit also gives us gifts, doesn't it? The Spirit distributes to all Christians gifts which we use to build up the body. We use these gifts to build up the church. Each of us, by the Holy Spirit, has been endowed with different gifts. We are all unique in this. We are all uniquely gifted. And the church needs us. You individually are important in the church. The church is, the, the Holy Spirit has distributed gifts equally among his people. Now, we're not all the same, are we? We don't all have the same gifting. But Christ, in his sovereignty, in his mercy, has distributed gifts as he sees fit. Which means if you believe in Jesus, you have been gifted by God to serve his church. You have been gifted by God through the Holy Spirit to serve his church. So therefore, it says uh, in verse 8, it says, When he ascended on high... He led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Okay, what is going on here? Well, we're we're in Psalm 68, verse 18. So Paul decides that now is the perfect time to bring out Psalm 68 and apply verse 18 to this passage, what he's trying to talk about here. And so uh, this quote from Psalm 68 uh, is is, is a psalm of God's victory over his enemies. Uh, and, it, and it's linked to the Exodus account when God rescues his people from slavery in Egypt and he brings them through the Red Sea and the sea waters part and they get to walk through on dry land. But when Pharaoh and his army and his chariots try to pursue the Israelites and they're running through the middle of the, uh, the, of the water, God immediately stops uh, the miracle and the waters crash over Pharaoh's army and God is victorious over his enemies that sick. To destroy his people. And so it's a psalm of God's great victory. And then it talks about, in this psalm, in this verse, it talks about God ascending on high, leading a host of captives and giving gifts to men. So according to Jewish tradition, this verse is speaking about God's presence on Mount Sinai. That moment when Moses went, goes up to commune with God and Moses gives him the Ten Commandments. Uh, Sorry, God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. And so Moses, having the Ten Commandments, uh, distributes that amongst 
the people. So this gift has come from God to all the people and it's in the form of the law. And this is the moment when Moses institutes, well, God through Moses institutes the old covenant. At that time, it was just the covenant, the, the covenant between God and his people. And they had to keep the law, the Ten Commandments. So why this passage? Why does Paul quote this passage? Well, just as God went to Mount Sinai and gave to Moses gifts to give to human beings, so also did Jesus rise again from the dead and ascend to the right hand of the Father and he gave the gift of the Holy Spirit to his disciples. In the same way that Moses instituted the covenant, so also did Jesus institute the new covenant in his blood when he died, was buried, rose again from the dead, sits at the right hand of the Father, and the Holy Spirit was sent. And that Holy Spirit came on the disciples at Pentecost and is still here today. That Holy Spirit is the gift that God gives to men. And so Paul is using this psalm and he's paralleling Jesus in the new covenant. And so this passage is all about the gift. Moses gave the law on those stone tablets, but Jesus gives the Holy Spirit who writes that law on the tablet of our heart. And so Paul is giving us an important, really important point to remember about Jesus. Let's keep going. Uh, verse 9. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. See, there's one really strange thing about Psalm 68, 18. In that psalm, it says that God ascended. Now, if you're a good Jew and you know your scripture... You're not going to, you're going to read that and think, how has God ascended? God is ruling. He's enthroned in heaven. He's higher above than all things. He's, he's lifted high. He's the highest being that there is. How can God ascend? If you're reading that psalm, it's a bit strange, isn't it? I mean, you can think of it as God ascending Mount Sinai. But God is way higher, way higher than all things. So it's a strange point to make in that psalm. And that's why Paul looks at that psalm and he sees Jesus. He sees Jesus in that psalm because he knows. He knows that that psalm is yet to be fulfilled. And here he is. Here he is being fulfilled right now. And he says, if God ascended, that means at some point he had to descend, didn't he? At some point he had to be here on the earth, in the lower regions, below the heavens, he was here on earth. When Jesus came as a baby, he was incarnated into human flesh. When he came vulnerable and he became dependent in the form of a baby, descended to this earth and lived a life among us and suffered. He descended and became part of our mess and brokenness became part of all our sin. He dwelt among us, it says. And he ascended. He was victorious over his enemies, just as God was victorious over his enemies when he destroyed Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea. Jesus on the cross destroyed all of his enemies and he ascended and gave gifts to men. And so Paul is saying, 
This is talking about Jesus. This is talking about Jesus. Because he who descended is the one who ascended far above the heavens, that he may fill all things. See, Paul's tying this whole letter together. Because you remember from uh, Ephesians, um, Ephesians 1, 18 to 23, talking about the power that rose Jesus from the dead and seated him in the heavenly places. That same power is at work in us. That same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the Father is the same power at work in us. You remember that um, from Ephesians 1, 18 to 23. Remember when we went through that? See, Paul is intricately weaving this theology all through the text. Because if we don't remember the fact that Jesus came to earth and lived among us, that he ascended to the right hand of the Father and rules and reigns right now, we're going to miss the whole point. And in fact, um, God gives to us people. He gifts to us people. Notice in verse 11, it says, He gave, notice that, He gave the apostles. He gave the prophets. He gave the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So these these offices of the, the, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, all of these are spirit-indwelt individuals that God gives to the church in order to equip the church and build them up for the purpose of ministry and maturity. These are the gifts that are given by Jesus. The gifts given to Jesus by the church, it's not the full gifts, but part of the gifts is the fact that God gives us leaders. He gives to the church leaders to be an example and to work on his behalf in the church. God gives to us leaders. Now, we've already seen the apostles and prophets. They've already come up twice, actually, in Ephesians. This is the third time now that we're seeing the apostles and prophets. Who are they? Well, we saw in uh, Ephesians 2.20, right? We saw that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. These are the commissioned workers in the early church, commissioned to establish the church in the middle of a hostile environment as the church was just getting, um, just kicking off. And they were the ones that we already saw reveal the mystery of the gospel that all people get to be included in this message of salvation. That Jesus was here to reconcile both Jew and Gentile and the apostles and the prophets were the ones carrying that message. They were the ones that were establishing the early church. These were the gifts given by Jesus to the church. These, these men, these women who were, there were women who were also prophets. They were there to to, to protect the church and to establish its doctrine and to write the scriptures. We've already seen them, the apostles and prophets. But now we've got another list, don't we? We've got some other people here. Evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Who are these people? Well, let's go one by one. Evangelist. Someone who proclaims good news. That's what the word means in the Greek. Someone who proclaims good news. This is someone who is spiritually gifted to share the gospel with non-Christians. These are people that are particularly gifted 
in sharing Jesus with those who don't know him. Now, I don't know about you, but you probably met these kinds of people. These are the kinds of people that at any moment can be, you'd be hanging out with them and at any moment they're in, in a conversation with someone about Jesus. They're the kind of people that are motivated, mobilized, effective at evangelism. The kind of people that will see ways and, and use ways in order to get people to understand uh, the gospel message. They'll seize every opportunity they can to share the gospel. These are particularly gifted people in evangelism. God spiritually gifts people with the gift of evangelism. It is something that comes from the Holy Spirit. They didn't have it before, but now they have it. And we need evangelists in our church. We need them to train us on how to do evangelism because most of us are pretty hopeless at it, aren't we? We don't know how to talk to people about Jesus. We don't know how to answer people's questions. And yet evangelists come along and they're gifted and they know how to answer people and they know how to get to the heart of the issue. They know how to be dealing with people's hearts and they know how to show them their need for Jesus. And they're effective people that know how to, um, know how to bring people to an understanding of Jesus. And so men and women can be gifted evangelists, people that are particularly good at sharing Jesus with those who don't know him. We need them in our church. We, we desperately need them. We need them to train us. We need them to motivate us. Because some of us are just not motivated to want to share the gospel with people. But it's a lot easier if you have someone gifted in evangelism to come alongside you and show you how to do it. And, and Paul says that's why they're here. Evangelists are here for what reason? To equip, train the church for ministry. To equip and train the church for ministry. And then we have this, uh, these other titles, which are actually the same thing. The shepherd teachers. Now, it is strange that Paul gives this list, and this list is, he gives these, these different things in the Greek. He'll say, you know, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and then he says, the shepherd teachers. We have it translated here, the shepherds and teachers, but it's actually better interpreted as the shepherd teachers. These people that have two roles, they shepherd and they teach. You can't separate these two roles because that's what they do. So... We call these shepherd teachers, we call them pastors. Pretty, pretty easy to know. Uh, you can easily spot a pastor. They're people who are pastorally hearted. They care about people. They counsel people. They walk alongside people. They show people the scriptures. They're particularly gifted in discipling people and showing them more about Jesus. And they're really great teachers. They're people that are able to interpret the Bible correctly. They're people that are able to apply the Bible really well into people's lives. These are spiritually gifted people that God has given to the church to equip them. And so these leaders in the church are designed to equip people uh, to be effective Christians, to be effective as a church. God gives us these leaders. And so anytime that you have the privilege of being sitting under good leadership, you have God to thank for that. Because God is the one who gave you that person. God is the one that gave that gift to the church and equipping that person. Now, if you're a leader, I know I'm a leader, we can't get a big head about that. Because that didn't come from us. We can't be like, oh yeah, we're a gift. You know, we're a gift to the church. We're God's gift to the church. Oh, don't want to go down that path, brother. We, yes, in leadership is a gift to the church. But any leader can quickly become a curse to a church especially a leader full of pride. So this is, this is less a, a word for leaders to get puffed up and more a word for the church 
to be able to, to be thankful for their leaders, to be able to identify those that have these gifts and to put them in leadership. So the purpose of all this, the reason this is happening is so that the church will grow to maturity. And this is what Paul is going to take us for the rest of this letter. He's going to be talking about the maturity of the church now. This is, this is what he really wants the Ephesian church to get an understanding of. And we need to be the same. We need to understand this as a church. doesn't matter what church you're a part of. This is just like integral stuff to the health and maturity of any church. Verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. All of us are growing into maturity, it says here, to mature manhood. What's going on there? We're all going to, it actually says, into the perfect man. We've got to be growing up into manhood. Well, what's going on here? For my, for my sisters out there listening to this, you may be thinking, what? how can I be going into manhood? Do I have to start hitting the gym? Do I have to start drinking protein shakes? No, that's not what's going on here. See, the Bible uses all sorts of symbols to talk about the church. We've already seen Paul use the symbol of a temple, didn't he? Now he's using the, the, a symbol of the, the church being Christ's body. Uh, later in Ephesians, we're going to see the church being refi- re- referred to as Christ's bride. Already, in one letter, we've seen the church referred to in masculine ways, growing up to be a man, and in feminine ways, seen as Christ's bride. They're all symbols to help us understand how the church ought to, uh, needs to be. And so the church here is Christ's body. And we as a church need to grow together. We need to be growing as a church. And the, what we're growing into is mature manhood. What kind of mature manhood? Into the fullness of the stature of Christ. We as a church are growing up into being like Christ. We are growing up like a child grows up from infancy into adulthood. When we're small, when there are new Christians there, we're immature. We're vulnerable. We're like children. But as the church grows and grows in maturity and grows in commitment and grows in uh, long-suffering, you grow up into an adult. You grow up from being immature into mature. And there are two ways that Paul says this happens. Unity and the knowledge of of the Son of God. Two ways. See, maturity comes from a commitment to Christ. Then everyone will know in your community that you're marked by the gospel. Everyone should know that you're the Jesus people. You're the people that are like Jesus. You reflect Jesus. They should be able to look at you and see character traits in you that remind them of Jesus. If they have anything to do with Jesus, if they know anything about Jesus, they should know that your life has been transformed to be more like His. See, if you're a person that, that travels from church to church, if you're a person that easily can go to that church and easily go to this church, and you're always part of a church and you're looking, what other church could I be part of? What other church could meet my needs? What other church could do what I need them to do? If that is your attitude, I'm sorry, but you have never experienced church. Can I just suggest to you that you don't know what church is? If you're going from church to church, like if it's for doctrinal reasons, I understand, like if the church is teaching heresy, get out of there. But if you're in a solid church and you're always looking to go from a church to church, then there's something wrong. There's something wrong. If you can, 
Like if, if you can leave a church and, and it doesn't break your heart, there are tears at the thought of leaving this community. Can I just suggest that you probably don't know what church is. You probably never experienced it. You probably really never experienced all that God has for you. My main point is this, this doesn't happen organically. Churches don't just grow into maturity in Jesus organically. It takes effort. It takes work and, and, and joyful work. Don't get me wrong. Work that is full of rewards, work that is worthwhile to do. But you have to be active. If you're passive in church, you're going to get almost nothing out of church. You get your sermon, you get your music, and then boom, you're out of there. Where's the fellowship? Where's the application of that word in your life? Many of us are just stunted as Christians. We're still children. That's a travesty. It's tragic. It takes, it takes spirit-filled leadership, yes. It takes leadership to, to guide the boat. But people are going to be working on the boat. If any boat goes somewhere, you got to imagine you're on James Cook's Endeavour. You're doing all the exploration stuff. You're heading out. The captain directs the ship, but the workers have got to get the ship there. The leaders basically can't do anything to make the church mature. They can only point it in the right direction. They can, they can tell people and, and equip people, but unless the people use the things that you equip them with, well, the ship's not going to go anywhere. The church grows through commitment, through people being equipped, through people being mobilized, and people willing to suffer for Jesus. And so are we willing to suffer? Or do we just want our comfort? See, church, a church committed to unity in faith in Jesus is growing in their knowledge of Jesus. And, and, and like, how can we do this? If you're like, Cody, I understand, I want to get better at this. I understand that this is what church needs to be, and I want that. I want to get better at this. How do I do it? Well, brother, sister, number one, participate in the life of the church. Get involved in the church. Get involved even if you don't want to. Trust me, the more you get to know the people in the church, the more you get to come alongside people in the church, you're going to start to love them. You're going to start to care about them. You're going to start to want to see them. Number two, commit long-term. Don't church hop. If you want to see a church grow into maturity, guess what? That takes time. And if you parents out there that have seen children grow from babies into adults, you know that takes a long time. It's like half your lifespan watching that child grow. It takes a long time for a church to grow up into this. It doesn't happen overnight. Be committed to it. Be involved in it for the long term. Because if we don't care about our church, we're in big trouble. Because there are real dangers that threaten churches, and there are real things that destroy churches. And they're out there, and they will destroy all immature churches if we don't watch out. And Paul talks about them, verse 14. See, we commit to church so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, 
by craftiness and deceitful schemes. This world is dangerous to churches. There are many things that threaten us as a church. They threaten, they threaten our relationship. They threaten our faith, our unity with Jesus. All these things come and destroy a church. Mature churches, they weather the storm of changing culture. They weather the storm of all sorts of things. They weather the storm of persecution and suffering. Immature churches collapse. Jesus talks about a man that builds his house on the sand. And when the great storm comes, the sand shifts, the whole house collapses. But the wise man builds his house on a rock. And we must build our church on that rock if we want that church to stand. See, weak, immature churches capitulate to the culture. They're vulnerable to dark spiritual attacks. They're vulnerable to being brought into sin and being tempted away from Jesus and being tempted into all sorts of different doctrines. See, immature Christians hear different doctrines and they don't know what to believe. They're here and there, all over the place. Someone says one thing bad about them and immediately they change their doctrine because they don't want to be seen of as bad. There's no commitment to the scripture. There's no maturity. They're still children, naive, being told what to believe by adults. They haven't grown up and understood what's reality. They haven't understood what's true. Mature people, mature churches stick firm to doctrine. They stick firm to loving each other. They stick firm to uh, coming alongside each other and making sure that these things do not prosper. It happens as a body. It happens as a church. It's together that we are matured, not separate. It's together that we are matured, not separate. Can you think of anyone who's blown around by all these teachings? One minute they'll believe this, one minute they believe that. The culture says this, they're there. The culture thinks this is right, they're over there. There's no commitment to scripture. Steer clear of those people. Beware of those people. Because their immaturity is easily rubbed off. They're deceitful, they're cunning, and they're in churches. So watch out. See, I often talk to people and, you know, they'll say, oh, that person was creepy. And I'll be like, oh, okay. I didn't get those vibes. But some people that just have those, like, really sharp senses that no matter what person they come up, they'll be like, man, that guy was creepy. That was a weird situation. That guy was really strange. Someone's just given off really creepy vibes. Well, discernment is kind of like that, but with doctrine. You kind of work out the creepy doctrine, the doctrine that makes you feel that unease, that doesn't line up with the scripture. Discernment is when you can see that these things are not true if they're, they're held up in the scripture. And sometimes they may sound true, and remember, they're cunning, they're deceitful, they, they sound good, they, they tell us what our itching is, want to hear, but the discerning person can sense there's something a bit off about it, something a little creepy about what that person has said. I mean, creepy is maybe not the best analogy, but you get what I'm saying. They can sense the wolves in sheep clothing, whereas some other people just can't see it. That's why we need each other as a body. Because we need those people with discernment to be able to show us what is true and what isn't true so we can all be mature. And so this is how we protect our church. If you want to know how to protect our church, all you have to do is do verse 15 to 16 and we will be good. 
And that all we have to do is this, and our church will be strong and grow into maturity. And this is what we do. It says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Spiritually destructive teaching is countered by speaking the truth in love. Spiritually destructive false teaching that comes in and destroys churches is countered by speaking the truth in love. In Greek, uh, the word speaking the truth, well, actually is literally truthing. Now, that's bad English, so we can't say truthing, but it's kind of this understanding of doing truth. See, speaking the truth, great, but it's a little bit too narrow because in the Greek, it's literally doing the truth by speaking it, by living it out. It can't just be speaking it. You have to live it out. This is what kind of Paul is getting here. Of course, we must speak it, but speaking is too narrow. We need to live it because if what you're saying is you think it's true, why are you living it? If you think what you're telling someone is true, why are you, why is your life different? If you're going to approach someone and speak the truth in love, and yet you do not live out the truth that you're telling them, why even bother? Speak it to yourself well before you speak it to someone else. Speak it to yourself well before. Live it out. People should be able to see your truth. They should be able to hear your truth. You're saturated in it. It doesn't just come out of your mouth. It's lived by you. If If you're saying we need to be more like Jesus, make sure you're like Jesus. If you're going to call out sin in this area, you better make sure that you're not doing the same sin they're doing. You better make sure that that's not the case. Because we don't want to be hypocrites. There's no point rebuking doctrine if you don't live out your doctrine. We must be love-saturated people. Whenever we we speak truth into situation, it's saturated by love. You need to ask yourself, if you're going to go and speak truth into a situation, ask yourself a few questions. Number one, do I actually love this person? Because if you don't love that person, you don't care about them, don't go and speak truth to them. Ask yourself that. Do you actually care about that person? Before you speak, ask yourself these questions. There are two kinds of false love. There are two kinds of false love. And people think they're being loving, but all they're doing is loving themselves. The first kind of false love, control. You control people. And you feel like you're doing it for their benefit, but you're not. You're doing it so that you can be in control. It's all about loving yourself. You don't care about them. It's a false love. Control. The other kind of love is freedom. It's a false love just like any of the other loves. You know, you have to accept me for who I am. Don't, you know, accept that person for who they am. Don't say anything. Don't criticize them. Don't speak into their situation. Watch them slowly destroy themselves. That's a false love. You know why? You're not saying that to them because you love yourself. You don't want to make it issues with your relationship with them. You don't want to say anything hard to them because you don't like the situation that puts you in the awkwardness. The fact that you may have to put your, make yourself vulnerable in front of someone else. False loves. You really just love yourself. I don't know which, which side you drift to, but we all drift to one of those sides. Are you a controller? Or do you just let people get away with anything? Neither is love. Neither is love. 
If you really love someone, you won't be able to help but speak to them. If you really love someone, you'll be very careful how you do it because you don't want to give them the wrong idea. We see in Jesus, truth and love dwell perfectly, don't we? We see truth and love dwell perfectly. Learn from Jesus. Remember, it's in the knowledge of the Son of God that we learn how to do this. And so when each part works properly, remember, you are a part of the church. You don't get a free pass on this. When each part works properly, the body grows into adulthood. It grows into mature uh, manhood. It grows into the fullness of the stature of Christ. And it builds itself up in truth and it builds itself up in love. This is what Paul has for the Ephesians. Do you care about the church? This is my question. Do you care about the church? More pointedly, do you love the church? Just be honest. I can't, I can't see what you're doing. <laughs> Just be honest with yourself right now. Assess your heart. Do you love the church? So Jesus loved us enough to endure the cross. Jesus loved us enough to suffer and die and give his life as an atoning sacrifice so that we would go free. His love was sacrificial. His love was the most pure form of love that anyone has ever showed you in your life. I don't care how well loved you are or how little loved you are. Nothing even compares to the love that Jesus showed you on the cross. So what did Paul say we needed in verse 18? He said we needed the knowledge of the Son of God. If you're struggling with loving the church, you need more of Jesus. If you're struggling to love the church, you need to know Jesus more. When was the last time you spent time with him? So let's all work together to live out the truth of the gospel. I want to pray for us. Father, we, we need you in our church so badly. Lord, you have already grown us into such maturity. You have already done so much in this little church, in this little young church. But Lord, we see in our hearts how far away we are from where you want us. We see in our hearts the ways that which this church has not been a place of comfort, not a place of refuge, that we, we don't really come to worship you, Lord, but we come to worship ourselves. Lord, it is a wicked thing that we can turn your most holy people and this most holy of communities and turn it into a way to love ourselves. Lord, I pray that my friends that are convicted by this would be able to repent. I pray for those that feel like they don't need to do anything, Lord, that you would show them the truth of your word and the truth of your son, Jesus, so that they will want this. I pray for some of my friends who have gone from church to church and never experienced church. Lord, I'm sure that they want to experience church. Let it happen here, Lord. Lord, your son gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit, Lord. 
we want that gift here. We want you to continue to give us gifts in the form of leaders, Lord, in the form of workers and people equipped for ministry. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. It's in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.